Hi, this is What Do, the serious business podcast for serious business people. I'm Tom McCoy, your top autist, or at least one of them. Okay, serious business podcast now playing. And that's my co-host, Siri. Apparently, there's a podcast called Serious Business Podcast. Thebes. All right. So with me today is beloved international child star, world-renowned psychiatrist, and founder of Drug Story Theater, Joseph Schrantz. Hi. Well, hello, Tom McCoy. Thank you so much for having me. New. So let's start with your humble beginnings. South Africa, you don't talk about it much. What are your memories? Um, I remember we had a fig tree in the front yard, which was pretty cool. And then on occasion, baboons literally would walk down the, the road from uh, Table Mountain. It's pretty interesting. But I, I was there, you know, for a little bit as a very young infant. Um, I was born in South Africa. My mother was in Cape Town, and I, I wanted to be close to her when I was born. Yeah, if, if people can, could have seen Tom's quizzical look at that moment, it would have been great. Then we moved from uh, Cape Town to London to Boston, back to London, back to Cape Town. So I left Cape Town for good. I mean, I don't mean it in that way, but but sometime, I was like seven or eight years old. I had gone to a private school called Sachs School, which I remember. Um, I remember meeting Roger Bannister, who was the guy who broke the four-minute mile. So I do have a lot of a lot of memories about um, about Cape Town in that way. It was it was beautiful. Some serious shoulder brushing. Now, South Africa, London, Boston. Do you have a least favorite accent among them? Uh, I think probably my South African accent may be my, my least favorite. Yeah, it's it's probably that takes the least effort because yeah, you kind of like draw, just draw up the palette in South Africa, you know? Very much what it is, mate. You just, you just do the South African accent. The British accent's a little bit different though, because that one, you, you have so many variations of your British accent. You can have a you know, sort of snotty British accent. You can have a, a Cockney accent, mate, like, you know, what's going on in the pub and give me a Guinness. Uh, the, the, but I was told um, and was actually advised uh, when I was in college to drop all my accents and do one if I needed to, so I would not be typecast. But you didn't already have enough brownie points from being uh, Joe from Zoom? Um, I think that was probably a big part of, of the brownie points, was uh, saying, you know, if you, if you want to be more than just Joe from Zoom, you should uh, try to do something other than your British accent. But sometimes, I just can't help it sometimes. It just, there are certain words that just uh, continue to be British. It is fun to have an accent that you could just get away socially with using and say, no, this is how I talk. And you know what's interesting is a lot of people uh, who were watching Zoom did not think that I was really British. They thought that I was making it up. I didn't find that out until years later on Facebook when people were said, yeah, and remember the British accent he used to pretend to have? So you spent some time with your own theater company. You went to Belize. So, yeah, so I was in, I mean, we're really just hopping around my, my whole uh, early life here. So I was in Belize for a little bit because I had actually moved to New York after having a theater company briefly up here in the Boston area. I moved back to New York, this was around 1980, um, and uh, was working as a writer uh, for CARE, like the International Aid and Development Organization. I was the, um, the national organization fundraiser. So I would 
write things for garden clubs and Rotary International and things like that. And CARE applied for a grant from Rotary International, which we won based in part on my writing. And it was for a program in Belize called REAP, R-E-A-P, Rural Education and Agricultural Program. It became part of the Belizean government. And what it was, was going into these small villages uh, in the mountains of Belize um, and teaching kids about science and math and biology by helping them and their villages grow crops and improve the nutritional status and the financial status of their villages. So I, I go down there for a, a couple of weeks to, uh, to, to look at it and work with them. And it was right at the time of the Falkland crisis. I don't know if you remember the Falkland crisis. You're probably a bit young for that, but this was when there were these, these boats like steaming for Argentina. Just and shelling the shit out of their islands, right? Yeah, right. And so the Brits, uh, because Belize was still a British protectorate, were sending their ships uh, through the Atlantic Ocean to protect their their colonies, in essence. So when you when you fly when you flew into this tiny little airport in Belize, it, it was surrounded by these camouflaged tanks and ACAT guns, uh, and so there was a lot of tension uh, in Central America at that time. But care officials were just so beloved because we were really there just to do humanitarian stuff. We were doing good. So we had access to Belize, Nicaragua, Guatemala, Honduras, you know, the whole thing. So I, I got a chance to sort of look around at all these places. And while I was there, like I, I like to say, I realized that I was doing medicine wholesale. I was helping people that I would never really have personal contact with by writing these grants and making sure that money was going to support these neighborhoods. And I thought, you know, I, I want to do this retail. I wanted to do it personally. So when I came back to New York, I continued working in care and went to uh, Columbia University to get my pre-med stuff. And, and that is where it began. That is where it began. So it was explained to me previously that the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist and a, is a psychiatrist like went to med school and got an, a, like a real physical degree. So for those who don't know, uh, for a psychiatrist to get their degree, the final exam is there's a bowl full of brains and the psychiatrist has to take it out, take one out and squeeze it as hard as they can. Do I have that right? You're absolutely right. So what was it like, like cutting up your first guy? It, it was really quite fascinating because it was actually the first day of medical school that you do that. Really? And uh, yeah, the very first day. Um, and you go up with all, all the other medical students, first year medical students, first day, all nervous really nervous and you walk into uh, a chilled room not not surprising um, and you've got your lab coats on and what you see are table after table after table of covered things that look like about the length and width of a body and they are they're covered with these these sort of um you know waterproof cloth stuff and you have a team, you're on a team of four people, there are four of us, two on either side, and we pull back this cloth and there face down uh, is a cadaver, a cadaver. Um, 
And the reason it's face down is because the first thing that you learn to dissect is the back because it's one of the simplest parts of the body. There's very little that you can really mess up. And you start with the scalpel going down the spine and separating uh, the skin and then beginning to look at the different muscles, latinimus, dorsi, things like that. And I can still remember some of it. Um, as you proceed, you eventually, you're gonna, you're gonna be doing everything. You know, you're going to be dissecting everything and learn. It was absolutely fascinating, incredible experience to do this. And we wrote to the people who had donated the body because it, it's, it's a real, it's a remarkable gift. I'm not, I'm not being silly. It's, it is, I think, one of the most noble things that one can do is to donate one's body to medical school because Unlike donating an organ to one particular person, which is also like really important, this is providing a knowledge for all sorts of people. And you don't have to have the healthiest body. As a matter of fact, when we turned the guy over and, and did it say this, this guy had a huge aortic aneurysm. He had a, a huge outpocketing of the, one of the, the main artery going from his heart down uh, to the rest of his body. And then at some point, you have to then study the uh, the hip structures and the stuff inside the hip and in, the only way you can do that this is going to freak people out the only way you can really study that pelvic cavity is to saw the body in half oh jesus and at this point the beatles song just ripped through my head and i started singing it out loud with my other medical students suddenly i'm not half the man i used to be Sorry, but I, I, it really, it just, it just came to me. Do, uh, do they tell you ahead of time if they had any certain conditions? Because I, I think it would be funny to pull a prank where you give them a body that has that thing where everything's mirrored. Wouldn't that be interesting? That would totally freak things out. No, they, they don't. That's what's so great about it is they don't tell you. And then as you go through, you, you look. And then what's great is because you're in there with, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of other people, you share. Say, wow, look at this. This is an aortic aneurysm. Look at this. This guy had cardiac surgery, and here you can see the, the stuff in the heart. Look at this. It's amazing. It was, it was really, it was a humbling, humbling experience. Um, it was, it was an, a true honor to, to be able to do that. But starting the first day, can you imagine that? Hmm. Very first thing you do is you begin uh, the anatomy dissection. Why are we so scared of our insides? Like it's so once upsetting to look at. Because because they're meant to be inside, hmm. and I think if they're outside, then you know you probably have some concerns. Something's happened. But even without context, it's like our brains. Yeah, brains are scary to me, hmm. but we are our brains. Why is it scary to you, Tom? It's just so alien looking. It's all it's all gross and wrinkly, and it's like something H.R. Geiger would draw, like all veins and weird uh, geometry, right? And foldings and, and all sorts of shapes and things. It, it is it's pretty amazing that it, it works at all, really. But it's so complicated. That was that was the other. I mean, talk about anatomy. That was also a really weird part of what we had to do. Was you know. 
imagine how you get into you know the brain you've got to carve through the skull that was an interesting exercise too but there it is it was amazing so i think the reason um why we get so freaked out so many people get freaked out really is because if you're seeing an organ it means either you or somebody else has been really really damaged um or you've done or damaged somebody else and i i do think that there there is uh, a very ancient limbic primitive response in us that just freaks out because it means you know could be predators around somebody could come and try to eat some of that stuff but it's weird that we also seek being freaked out in those ways like it like i mean obvious i don't know if it's obvious but like there there people can come across videos on the internet of people dying yeah and it's grisly but also people will look for it it's a, yeah. there's a strange drive to see it and here's my theory okay if you hear someone's died and you look up how they died to find the video it's like it's like trying to see find out the predator that killed them Mm, yeah, very, very good theory. Absolutely. Another survival part of who we are as human beings. You know, at, at, at my age, when I look at, at the obituaries these days, I, I don't always look at the name. I'll just go, um, you know, younger than me, younger than me, my age, a little older than me, my age. Little old, you know. Back to the brain, though. Does it ever unsettle you? I can't imagine learning brain science without getting a little like freaked out the more I go into like neurons and stuff. Because it, it can reduce your idea of what makes you you can be reduced to just bzz, 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 neurons, right? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think that there is that, that risk of that reductionist thing. But, but personally, the more I study medicine, the more I believe in something much, much bigger than us. That there's, it is just too beautifully complicated to have just occurred by chance. And we know, of course, you know, with Darwin and natural selection, there isn't chance in that way. You know, it's natural selection. Some, some do better than others, but it's still mind-blowingly beautiful and just so intricate. And, and the more we learn at, at, at these atomic levels, at, at the level of deep, deep, deep in the cell and looking at the way things are running, it's mind-blowingly cool, incredibly complicated but just remarkable and that it's all coded for in many ways. You know, it's coded in your DNA, but your DNA is not necessarily going to activate. Your DNA is only as good as your environment. A gene is only as good as its environment. So it may be activated or not. There's a whole thing called epigenetics where a clump of little molecules just stick onto a DNA and it either makes it open up and get transcribed, which means it then becomes coded, you know, printed in essence into a machine, a protein, or it doesn't. It's really fascinating, cool stuff. And that's something I only learned about very recently, the idea that your genes can change, because people used to cite that as like, oh, I can't change because my genes. Absolutely right. That's right. Um, they can. It, it, again, it's a science called epigenetics, where your, your genome is affected by your environment, which makes perfect sense, you know, just makes sense. It's 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 also important for many people, you know, who who don't change their genes that they probably should change them, you know, at least every couple of weeks and wash them. Yeah, it, 
I leave them a few days. I'll wear the same jeans like maybe four days in a row. Yeah. Because I, I, I do walk and like jog a lot, pick up trash. Yeah. Has that changed during COVID? Did you find that you're like wearing your jeans a little bit, a little more longer these well, days? So at the beginning of COVID, I went whole hog pretty much like so many other people that got, could work from home is like I would wear like the pajama pants all day. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I drink like maybe eight beers a, a day because I'm like, hey, quarantine. Yeah. Then it got yeah, old. I, I, yeah, no, I remember that stage, that phase of you. Yeah, we, we had some great shows during that time. Yeah. Very true. But I also like feeling clothed. Like, I don't understand people who can go out in public wearing pajama pants. Yeah. It's, it's, it feels like you might as well be naked. I like the yeah. feeling of denim hugging my body. So uh, in the morning, I'll like have my coffee or all that stuff. But then I will put on jeans when I sit down at the computer because it, it, it feels it feels more right. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, it was a long period of months and months in sweatpants for me, which, you know, felt it, it felt rebellious, really, in many ways. And I've. I've altogether stopped wearing sweatpants. I'll wear joggers. I'll wear basketball shorts. I'll wear pajama pants. But sweatpants mm. are like, it's sadness made manifest. Mm. That's, that's such a great thought and image, Tom. We have so much to talk about. I can see that. Let's, uh, we'll help them change. And one of the best ways we can change is introduce them to theater, to be able to take on a new role. Because mm. Dr. Joe, you're the, if I'm not mistaken, the founder of a, an organization called Drug Story Theater, which is similar to DARE, except it's not a fear-based uh, initiative founded by fascists. So you have a few things going for you. Thank you. Yes, you are not mistaken. I am indeed the creator and founder of Drug Story Theater. Um, the elevator pitch is this. We take teenagers in the early stages of recovery from drugs and alcohol. We teach them improvisational theater, and then we use something called psychodrama, where they create their own scripted shows about the seduction of addiction to and recovery from drugs and alcohol. And then they perform these shows for middle schools and high schools, so the treatment of one becomes the prevention of many. And that's our slogan, the treatment of one becomes the prevention of many. And in between each scene of the show, the kids step out of character and they do PowerPoint presentations teaching the audience about the neuroscience of adolescent brain development, not to scare them, but just to say, you know, addiction is not about morality. It's about mortality. It's just the way your brain works. This is what's going on. And you have a lot of choices to make. You know, no one's going to scare you out of using drugs or alcohol because if the brain is going to choose between fear and pleasure, it will choose pleasure every time. But based on the neuroscience, can you hear that, by the way, that stuff in the background? That's my pug. Anyway, as I was saying, so that's what, uh, that's what we're trying to do is we teach kids about their brain to say how cool this is. Why would you want to give it away to drugs and alcohol? And we say, you know, don't let anybody ever tell you if you're using, look what you lost. You didn't lose anything. You gave it away and you can take it back. So it's not a fear-based thing at all. It is truly the treatment of one becomes a prevention of many. And um, it's, it's, profound for me because so many of our kids uh, who have gone through drugs-free theater stick around for years. I mean, they just, they feel like they now have a community. They've got a place, as one of our kids said, it's a no judgment zone. So we still meet, people are interested if they want to be part of it. 
we have a website, www.drugstorytheater.org, and that's theater with an ER, because so many of our kids wind up there. And there's a contact us page. You can contact us if you've got a kid who you're worried about, uh, or you're a kid who wants to just be part of it. We'd love to have you. Do it. Because it's it's like a neural pathway thing, right? Like if you're teaching others about this, it gets so it it is the term myelination. Am I using yes. that correctly? You are. So it's like it's like when you're lifting muscles. When you lift a muscle, you build muscle. And same thing when you're using a certain thought. The yep. thought becomes easier and more instinctive. Yeah, it, it is. It becomes more automatic. Um, and um, the myelination is the insulation around the neuron, the brain cells, which are like long wires. And in order for it to be able to conduct the electrical charge from one end to the other, it needs an insulation around it. And that's what the myelin is. Um, and the myelin uh, develops as you grow older. So you're not fully myelinated at birth. Parts of you are. But you've all seen babies, and they're not slam dunking basketballs, but they have enough myelin in their motor cortex. They're part of the brain controlling their muscles. So they can wiggle around and they can, you know, swallow food and you know suck on a bottle or whatever they need to but they're but they're really not slam dunking basketballs that happens later so the brain matures uh, as you get older and that's part of what we teach in drug street theater we don't use the word myelin we don't you know make it that complicated but we teach the kids in the audience that based on the way the brain is developing if you start using drugs or alcohol after the age of 21, one out of 25 people are at risk for lifelong addiction. But if you start using before the age of 18, that number goes from one in 25 to one in four. It's like this wow number. So we may be doing a show for you know, 800 sixth, seventh and eighth graders. Um, and after the show, there's a talk back, which I moderate with our kids. And I'll have 200 kids in the audience just stand up. And I'll say, that's how many kids in the audience right now are at risk for lifelong addiction, just because the way your brain is developing. Could be this group, that group, that group. I don't know which one, and you don't know which one. So we're just asking you, if you're going to use it all, grab you didn't. But if you are, please just wait until your brain is a bit more developed. And it's a one in 25 risk instead of one in four. So I don't think that's trying to scare kids. It's really not. It's not like, you know, don't use this terrible this, thing. This robot will shoot you. That's what, exactly. that, back in uh, grade school, that was one yeah. of the pitches was like this officer comes in with like the, the cool robot mascot. Yeah. Right. Just talks about, just talks about the legal repercussions of drugs. Yeah. Yeah, which, you know, is a whole nother debate. You know, we've, we've certainly used uh, drugs as a way to incarcerate a whole bunch of people who really should have just been getting help. Yeah, funny how that happens. It is funny, isn't it? You know. Nah. But you know, it gets back, it get back to uh, to medicine, right? Because why have we evolved a brain like that? Why have we evolved sort of social realities where one group of people decides that they're better than another group of people? Where one group of people says, you know, you're not, you're definitely not part of our group. 
So we're going to do things to remind you of that, that you are less valuable. But it's not an excuse at all. No, no, no. I mean, that's the thing. You know, knowledge is power. If once you know why something is happening, you have a huge responsibility to and an opportunity to change it. So, yes, we can talk about the genetics and the deep sociobiology and all that stuff. And I think part of that is true. But what we have done with it is transmute it and transform it into a social and cultural expectation that is not necessarily the same as a biological expectation. But it's real. And we, we have an opportunity to do something about it. And we must do something about it. Because eventually, you could be part of the other group. <laughs> you know, it's, you're not immune just because you're a privileged person in your society. As a matter of fact, sometimes you may become more vulnerable or think you're more vulnerable and then escalate uh, and up the ante and put more people away and more and more people away until eventually you will become isolated and alone in your tower. Because this has happened for a few centuries now, hasn't it? Like the idea that the term cultural Marxism is being thrown a lot around. And I used to use it too, because I was, I believed what I was told. It's like, oh, they're, they're coming for you, mm. that these people. Then I learned that this had the same meaning a hundred years ago. And it was just called something different. It was called Judeo-Bolshevism. Mm -hmm. This idea that social morality was being eroded by some outside force these long knives if you will mm -hmm. i'm not gonna uh, i'm not gonna make this anything but it's it, it is it is weird how we always need an enemy to direct our anger instead of wondering why we're angry to begin with i agree and and there's actually even some neurobiology behind that that there's a chemical in our brain that is designed to activate when your group is attacked by another group and binds you closer to the members of your in-group. It's fascinating. It's called vasopressin. It's billions and billions and billions of years old. And it is actually the precursor to oxytocin, which is really interesting because, you know, oxytocin, not oxycontin, oxytocin is a neurohormone of trust. And that's what binds us together in a different social way. Uh, and it came from this even more ancient, primitive part of our brain that said, you know what, we are safer in a group. And if every group thinks they're safer in their group, it is a setup for one group feeling that the other group is an enemy. So it's, so, it's like how bitching with coworkers builds camaraderie. It's like you're, yeah. you're offloading all that stress and it's like, oh, you guys get it. Right. But there's right. always and an enemy. It's like either management or the guys in the other departments. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 you know, there, there doesn't need to be. There really doesn't need to be. Um, but, but it is such a deep part of us. And I, I don't think it's an excuse. I mean, it, it's, it's part of... of most species is, you know, there is a tribalism to a species. There's a tribalism to a group. One group wants to survive more than another group. Actually, that's not exactly true. Both groups want to survive equally, and one group will suppress another group to do so. So 
it's what, um, it's what our mutual friend Mark Styles would call a scarcity mindset. A scarcity, yeah, that's exactly right. As if there's not enough to go around, mm -hmm. but of course there is, and that's the part that, you know, drug-free theater, in part, is showing, is you don't need to escape from the world using drugs or alcohol. You don't need to escape these feelings of anger, sadness. Of, of worry uh, by using drugs and pretending that you're part of another group. It's a shortcut to socialization. What you can do instead is remind other people how to stay safe. That's where the treatment of one becomes a prevention of many. Because as our kids do things for other kids, they begin to feel more powerful, they begin to feel more valuable. They're contributing. And that's what everybody wants. We just want to be seen as valuable. And the way we do that is by contributing to others. There's been a huge, huge culture of the way you become more valuable is to take from others. You become more valuable, somebody else becomes less valuable, you win. It's just not going to work anymore. It just if we keep doing that, we will destroy ourselves. God, sorry, I didn't mean to get so heavy. No, I mean, I started it, uh, but we're, we're seeing that destruction. I mean, how many hundreds of thousands last yeah. year alone? God damn. Yeah, but that was, that's the other thing that's really interesting about COVID in that case is that we're still doing the same sort of thing. We have a common enemy in this virus um, and it's brought a whole bunch of people together. It's separated others too as well. Some people say, you know, it's all a hoax um, and others say, no, it's not. So it's, it's, it's still sort of created camps and tribes in that way. But for the group that believes in it, it's cross-cultural. It's across socioeconomic standards. It's across age divisions. And it's basically saying, you know, we need to help each other out in order to defend against this common enemy. One day I am convinced we will not need a common enemy to come together as a group. We'll recognize that we are one group. It's called humanity. And that we can do even more for each other by helping each other because every time you help someone else, you actually are helping yourself because you are enhancing your survival. You, You're sharing things. You've called this for a while, actually. You, you've said pre-COVID that we are on the cusp of a, a, a leap in our society. Yep. yep. And combine that with the historic fact that no pandemic has happened that hasn't been followed by pretty major social uh, upheaval that's a, it's a negative sounding word upheaval but it's it's changed it's yeah and we uh we have a few directions that change can take and i like yours with the uh the i am approach where we mm. try to wonder how we can help each other instead of how we can win against each other that's right yeah by recognizing that we're all doing the best we can and that that seems so foreign isn't it like wait a sec how can i be doing the best i can shouldn't i be doing better well that's the best you can do is think you can 
you should be doing better. The question is why? Why is that sort of the driving force that somehow we're just not good enough? Um, and how does that connect with this evolutionary pressure to be better so that we can somehow succeed more than somebody else? Um, and the I am approach, as you know, is saying that we're doing the best we can, but if we don't like it, we can change it. That's, that's very different than treating it. We're not treating something implies that it's broken, but adaptation, evolution, change, I think is moving. It's, it's, not, it's not even necessarily progress because progress even implies that, you know, you weren't as good then as you are now. It, yeah, because then, then people will get defensive. That's right. Like people don't want to talk about what a stupid asshole they were last year. They want to talk about how great they've been doing for the past year. Yeah. And so the I am is saying, if you're not happy with where you are, you can use this approach and you can change. The first thing is to look at the four domains that influence the fact that you don't feel happy. And those domains are your home domain, the social domain, which is everything other than your home. These two domains are outside. And the two internal domains, your biological domain of your brain and body, we've been talking a lot about that today. And then something called the IC, capital I, lowercase c, how do I see myself? How do I think other people see me? Oh, I see. Because that's what we really are interested in. We don't want to always admit it, but we want other people to see us a certain way. And the way we want them to see us is valuable. So how do we do that? Does it really mean that, that you will see me as valuable if I have more money than you? I don't think so. I think you're just gonna get jealous and envious and want to take that away. But will you see me as more valuable if I share something with you? If I have something and I share it with you, does that make you feel you know, demeaned and belittled? Or does it make you think, wow, next time I've got something, I'm gonna go share it with somebody too, like that whole pay it forward thing. That's actually really interesting because the book I'm reading right now is uh, called Debt the First 5,000 Years. Huh. And it talks about uh, how society like is built on debt in a sense. It's like the, the social obligation to one another. So for example, there was never anything close to what we call a barter system. Like I'll give you five goats for, uh, for this egg. No, hmm. it was all lines of credit because it was, they were tight-knit groups. Everyone knew each other. And, and what does credit base actually imply, Tom? Trust. Trust. That's right. So and I will do something for you now. And later, I will expect you and hope that you will do something for me if I need it. So it makes yeah. sense that we talk about how the concept of honor and paying one's debts. Mm-hmm. That was literal. Yeah. It also implies a progression in the way our brains evolved that we could even think about the future in that way. Hmm. That if I do something now, it will have an impact on something later. And this, is, this gets back to drug story theater. Because what we know is that the adolescent brain, the younger brains, are not as capable of thinking about the future in that way 
everything is sort of here and now. If I do this now, something will happen right away. It's not if I do this now, something will happen later. And so that's part of what we teach in Drug Street Theater. If I use drugs now, something will happen later that may not be what you actually want, even though you may feel the pleasure of getting high right now. And we teach that, you know, because of the way the chemicals in your brain interact, you can get high, but the price you're going to pay is trust. And think about that. What does that mean when people don't trust you? Especially in regard to what you're talking about. Why would they give you any credit at all? Why would they lend you something? They can't trust you're going to pay it back. So right away, you are pushed into a particular group where you are not trusted. And now your survival is even more in jeopardy. And if that's where you start, you don't know what you're losing. That's right. What you've given up. You don't know what you've given up. up. So that's what we want to teach the kids. So, and so the I am approach is sort of the foundation of a lot of these things. It's the foundation of a program I started called Castle, um, where we were helping kids with substance use. And, and I, I hope this person doesn't mind, but I would actually like to read you something that, that came in, um, in mail to my website just the other day. The impact you made on my life. And the message is, hi, Dr. Shrand. I was going through old posts on the Castle Facebook page and stumbled upon Drug Story Theater and then your website here, which is drshrand.com. I remember every session we had, you tried so hard to get me to join Drug Story Theater. Well, I was honestly really ashamed and the spotlight on my insecurities terrified me. Looking back, it would have been a good opportunity to help a cause, but I'd like to let you know the appointments we had over the many years I had you. I take your words with me. I got so much out of the Castle program and the mental help I received from you and the programs you sent me to. The reason I have a home, a husband, three beautiful kids, continuing my education and more, a future, is because I stepped out of your door one day and stepped into a new attitude and new appreciation for my life. I have traveled states from here to Florida and Tennessee so far on a journey involving TikTok, helping addicts and the homeless get resources, food, and even just a ride to their local programs and facilities. It reminded me of how selfless and moving my old psychiatrist was and is. I took much of what you, Kim, and the staff gave to me on my road to recovery, and I've passed it along. So thank you so much. I hope all is well. Mind-blowing, huh? Talk about lines of credit. Yeah, talk about lines of credit. And it was spontaneous, you know, just was looking at a Facebook page of the program that she was part of years ago that I'd helped create stumbled upon drugstore theater again, my website, and chose to take the time to write that letter of gratitude. You know how touching that is? And it really, it brings tears to my eyes because 
we don't do these things thinking one day someone will call me up and say thank you. That's not what it's about. It's believing in someone. It's believing that they have value, that they can do this at a time maybe where they don't believe in themselves. That's what the I am is about. You can do that for yourself and for other people at every and any moment in time. You can remind someone of their value. And whenever you remind someone of their value, you increase your own value. The I am is saying, let's just look at people as influenced by their four domains. Let's look again at why we do what we do based on the influence of the four domains. And Tom, you've heard this over and over again, I know. Look again. Again, look. Again, to repeat something. Look like a spectator. Let's respect why people do what they do. When's the last time you got angry at someone treating you with respect? I mean, you just, right? Anger is an emotion designed to change things. That's the subject of one of my books that we had to actually republish because you couldn't get it anymore. People were paying hundreds of dollars to get it. So we decided, let's, let's get it back out there. Outsmarting anger. Outsmarting anger. Seven strategies for diffusing our most dangerous emotion. I won't talk about the I am directly, although there's a bit at the end of the book because it introduces the next book that's coming out in the fall. What's your I am? Unleashing the power of respect. Um, you heard it here first, folks. You heard it here first. Yeah, that's I think right. you actually did. Yeah, yeah, that's our, that's our new title. We have not revealed that title anywhere. What's your I am? Unleashing the power of respect. Um, but Outsmarting Anger, I'm, I'm really proud of that book because uh, it won an award back in 2013. People want it so much that they're willing to pay hundreds of dollars for the old hard copies. And we thought, you know what? Let's just reprint it. You know, $15.99, you can get it on Amazon. And, you know, if you do decide to pick it up, uh, please write a comment and let me know what you think. It could potentially change so much when we start really using respect as a way of changing someone's behavior. You know, anger is an emotion designed to change a behavior. Respect is a behavior designed to change an emotion. And we can do it. Hey, if I can, what's your excuse? <laughs> yeah, yeah, what do? Think about that. All right, Dr. Joe, thank you very much for your time. Uh, I'll see you again, who knows when, but it'll be great and we'll have fun Yes. And everyone listening, hi. <laughs>